From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. You're about to listen to our new show, The Groundsman Conversations, which is brought to you by Sports Digital. Sports Digital is a cloud-based presentation platform for rights holders, agencies, and brands that brings your story to life within immersive, exciting, easy-to-create proposals and presentations. Used by more than 50% of teams in the top leagues in the US, Sports Digital's technology enables partners to ditch PowerPoint and Keynote and create powerful presentations of their own that provide tracking analytics to help you understand the performance of your prospecting, cutting through the crowded marketplace to win business. So go to sportsdigital.com to book your demo. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Groundsman Conversations. You'll have picked up by now that um, our colleague Grant Williams isn't around today, and given what's going on in the world, um, no real surprises there. But I do have, uh, we do have the magnificent captain, Giles Morgan. How are you doing, matey? Well, Rog, I'm very well, and it's lovely to hear your voice and, and to see you. But, I mean, let's be fair, you, you are also an international man of mystery for this show. You're not in your normal Erie in, in Lake Como. You, you find yourself somewhere else. Tell us more. If you're yes, I'm to. in New York. Oh, yeah, I'm in New York. Oh, my goodness. What's happening in New York? Well, we've got um, a, a conference, a big um, streaming OTT conference, which one of my clients is is at, and we're going to spend the whole week here, and we're meeting the great and the good, you know, so it's 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 going to be a very intense week. So have you folded um, lots of shirts and stuff? I mean, this is a new for you, you know, we've all been locked away for so long. Have you got yourself so sartorially prepared for what could be a big, bi- a big business week? Yeah, yeah, no, sure, sure. But, you know, you don't you do not do shirt and tie so much anymore these days in the media sector. Rog, and, of course, sport old, is the media sector. Rog, you're too old to wear T-shirts and jeans at a conference. You're not that era. You know you're not. <laughs> Anyway, Captain, how are you? How, how's things? Well, it's been a hell of a week. It's been a hell of a week for, for, for all of us in the world of sport, Not obviously notwithstanding what the ghastly events happening in, in Ukraine are, which rather like the, the the amazing chat we had with Simon Barnes about how futile sport can be, never has sport felt more futile than with what's going on over in, in Eastern Europe right now. And then sort of on a micro level, but not micro, the world of of cricket was absolutely rocked to the to the very yes. core by the the death of two of its m- probably finest sons as any um cricketers have ever been in Rodney Marsh who I actually I think I compared you to once upon a time <laughs> so uh, rest in great peace great honor great a, honor a, a great honor and and the the truly astonishing um Shane Warne so with everything going t- t- on tell us tell us a little bit about them because that's where I wanted to start um, you know, strangely for somebody from my background, I've I've always been a great lover of of cricket, Test cricket, really not not the English county game, which I didn't have a lot of exposure to, but um, I, I remember the the Lily Marsh era, um, and you know the thing I liked about Marsh, I'm going to ask you to speak to about both of them more in detail because you can, and I can't really. Um, the thing I loved about the Marsh stuff that sadly was overshadowed twelve hours later, and he didn't get. 
um, the the kind of like accolades and the limelight that he should have got. Um, Rodney Marsh, a man of integrity. That was that was the the one I, I liked the most. And and then you know Warren, which you know for 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 many of of, of our generation was the cricketer. So tell us how did those two events happening so quickly together, Giles? How did they affect you? Well, I'm definitely a, a a boy who grew up probably with cricket as my first love as a, as a fan. I was a relatively handy shit cricketer, if you know what I mean. I played sort yep. of crap club and ran into bowl as hard as I could and swore at people. Um, but I loved the game very deeply. Um, I grew up with it with my with my father, who was a great cricket fan as well, and he took me to. Somerset and he took me to Lords and he took me to the Oval and he took me all over the place and there's a little boy brilliant way to give a boy you know a glass of lemonade and you can just let them get on with it and fill in the the little score sheet yeah I was really upset by both and I'll tell you why both yeah. encapsulate the Australian spirit of sport in slightly different ways Rod Marsh was a hard hard bastard he absolutely gave no quarter he and Lily I mean I think he took more catches from the, the Lily Marsh is still a yeah. world record and they had an extraordinary thing going in terms of he caught bolt Lily bowled Marsh caught it but not only that he was in the grill of 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 his competitors uh, of his of the opponents but always after the game first in with a beer he was tough unrelenting on the field and a warm man off the field but you know, you hear people like Ian Botham talking about Rod Marsh, how much they admired him. He then went on to really be one of the most influential coaches and academy coaches, yes. both, both in Australia and then over in, in, in England. Proving his love for the game was bigger than just the, the petty tribalism of, of nationality. Of course, when he played for Australia, he was the ultimate baggy cap wearer, the green baggy cap. But he still wanted to, he devoted him his life to the game. And I think that came through in all of the ways he played. And the outpouring of, of um, sadness when he died um, came through. He kind of represented the kind of, probably Steve Waugh would have modelled himself a little bit on Rod yeah. Marsh. The sort of cowboy, thousand yard stare, hard bastard, you don't mess with this guy. But underneath it, a man of great integrity. You then take the other side, which is um, Shane Warne, who I think there are some transcendental sports people who have played across sport. And I would suspect there are many um, people in the world who are not cricket fans who will know who Shane Warne was. Not only because he kind of looked pretty remarkable with his sort of uh, bleach blonde hair, particularly in the early days. He was also a bit of a porker uh, back in the early days. He, yeah. he he liked a cigarette a lot. He liked mm -hmm. um, he liked to entertain, but he, but he had a <laughs> he liked to entertain. <laughs> he did, did like, but he but he had a talent um, which, if you know very little about some sports technically, which many of us don't, but you only need to so show someone of, of how he could bowl a ball. And you don't need to be a cricket fan to see that what he was doing was something extraordinary and how many batsmen could not get a, literally get a bat on on that. And I've got a nice anecdote about, about him. Yes. I've been terribly lucky, as you know, over the years. I've, I've met many sports people professionally and got to know them and, and it's been part of the captain's table and this show as well. And, and lucky me. 
I never met Shane Warne professionally. And had I done, I suspect it would be one hell of a good night. We would have got on well. But in 93, I was down in Somerset. Australians were playing Somerset in a pre uh, a pre-test warm-up match, as they do. They often go down to Somerset um, at the start of the tour. So this would be in early May. And the media was beginning to talk about Warren, who'd got a couple of tests against India. But he was downplaying his... Uh, his ability as the, what was going to be the secret weapon. So this is before the Gatting ball. And I was there, young man, probably 23, 24 years old, and I'd read about him, and there was there was rain around in Somerset. So they had nets around the back of the of the of the of the ground. And I went and had a watch of uh to hmm. see what the, the Australians. And there wasn't much going on. The Aussies looked a bit cold. It was a bit of a miserable day. And this bloke was there. And uh, he was sort of looking a bit sort of cold. It was very cold. And I had a cigarette and he asked me for it. And it was Shane Warne. So my experience with him was having a chat about the weather, very British, having a cigarette. And then he started to bowl a few balls in the net. And I could hear the ball fizz, thinking, I have not, I play cricket. I have not seen anything like this. And he was just warming up. He then later on in that game um, got four or five wickets. And I think about a month or so later came in and and a star was born. But what I remember about that so clearly was we had a chat, two men, very similar age, just chatting over a cigarette about how chuffed he was and excited that he was um, over back in the UK. He'd spent some time in Bristol a couple of years before playing his club cricket. And what a just a down to earth bloke he was. Yeah. all of the obituaries and all of the sadness that we're now reading about is people can't believe a 52-year-old man taken as he has been, was that, yeah, he he was an, he had great arrogance, he was gamesmanship to the core, but he was generous to a fault, he was loyal to a fault, and he was just a straightforward bloke who loved his, loved his, loved the game and loved the life he had. And um, for both of them, which is a very Australian trait, right? Just yeah. very Australian. And for the two of these guys who Marsh, I definitely grew up with when Lillian yeah. Thompson were bowling yeah. and there was this bloke with a tash always catching yeah. at the other end. And then a bit later on in life, that I think they were, sorry to ramble, but this is quite a passion for No, this is great. Me. This so is great. There are certain cricketers. I mean, cricket perhaps throws out characters more than any sport because it's such a complicated game of chess and it requires different mindsets and physicalities and we get to see them all. You know, the big, burly, fast bowler, the the, the, the whippet-like batsman or wicketkeeper, whatever it is. There's lots of different yeah. iterations. But it, for me, if you were to say of the, the last 50 years, the cricketers who have changed cricket forever that I've been privileged enough to watch would be um, Sir Isaac Vivian Alexander Richards, Viv Richards, <laughs> because he was the first player to hit the ball from off stump, straight over mid-wicket, for, casually with a flick, and he, destroy, yeah, yeah. he destroyed bowlers. Then I would say that for box office, Ian Botham came along and just changed with swagger and Hollywood and a sense of presence that no one else really had done before. Not to that yeah. level, just pure there's just pure character to it, will to win. And then I would say Shane Warne, who yeah. took a dying art and made it perhaps now, legspin bowling maybe the most important. Of, this of, is the point, isn't it? It was a dying art. A dying art, not, which he resurrected. And yeah. 
He also brought a, a freshness, which I think both them and Richards both had, which was a, a cavalier attitude. Uh, you can do this. And he also, you think of how class-ridden cricket was. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that you had gentlemen and players. So you had the gentlemen yeah. coming out of one gate going to bat and the players and who had initials and who didn't. It was a pretty toxic game in a, in a yeah. modern era. And these guys were the Robin Hoods. These guys took it to the people and said, cricket is for all. And when you think of where, whatever you think about 2020 cricket or the different formats, from a stuffy old game that took ages to play, which still has immense value, by the way, and these those three would have absolutely been guardians of the old guard of how it was played. But it was yeah. the, the, the way the spirit of the game changed and opened it up. Um and that's why I think the sports world's been so rocked. The same will happen, I hope it's not for many years, because he is my all-time hero. But someone like Botham will have that same effect of people remember where they were when Warren bowled that gassing ball. At the same time, people remember where Ian Botham was when he took it to the Australians in 81 in the various yep. test matches. And so isn't it extraordinary? It's a bit like we're seeing, because of the era we're in, in... <laughs> A lot of rock stars are beginning to fall off their perch yeah. as they hit the 70s. A life of drugs, yeah. a life of alcohol, yeah. a life of excess. Well, there are one or two sportsmen who get into that category too. And we're beginning to mourn some of these these people who lit up our lives. And Yeah, you know, the thing, the thing Giles, that, 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 that was just really, really lovely to, to hear you say that. The thing with somebody like Shane Warner, I feel, is that there's some people in life, and it doesn't necessarily have to be sport, but normally it is, that you just feel that their physical body isn't big enough for who they are, you know? Um, is that, I mean, I never met Shane Warne. Is, is there a presence bigger than the actual flesh and blood, do you feel? I read a very inter interesting article, obituary for, by Mike Atherton, the former England crack, uh, cricket captain who's now writes to the Times, amongst other things, and he talked about there are certain cricketers who that it is particularly all-rounders and which Shane Warne was very much an all-rounder. He's known as a leg spin bowler, but he yeah. had that one ahead of a good batsman. Is that, and our great friend Chris Cairns, who, yeah. who remains with us, thank goodness. Um, he has um, conquered all sorts. But Andrew Flintoff, Ian Botham, of course, we've talked about. People with a will to win a desire to win and an absolutely dogged refusal to believe they are ever beaten is something that these many of these, particularly cricketers, but I can think of other sportsmen, Franz Klammer would be another one. People who did their sport on the edge and beyond and believed that they were never done. And therefore, I, I, I think when we see their passing, we're slightly incredulous that they've gone yep. at all because you can't yep. quite believe that they would have ever gone because no, they were such spirits. And they, there's a great expression in cricket, cricket where there are certain players who could, could empty the bar um, when a batsman yeah. came out to bat, not because they necessarily would decimate the bowling, but there was an expectation that they probably they would. Could. They yeah. could. Warren, I think, was the one of the very first bowlers who did it in reverse where he came on yes. to bowl... And you knew that these outrageous um, leg spin attack that he had, something was going to happen. The game was going to happen. 
And there are some wonderful anecdotes coming out now in the media of former players talking about how Warren took it to them, how he was up in their grill, how he was always chirping. And yet, my God, you know, he was known as King. That that great Australian team of which I think his in in the early days he was part of the greatest cricket team that ever played the game, and they oh. and they revere him as the greatest of them all, and there is no greater accolade. And this for for those of our, our listeners, we're like we're talking about the same impact that Maradona had, that Messi had, that Pele had, that some of these players who were transcendental. Shane Warne would be this, that pantheon for oh, cricket. Oh, for sure. To, to use Simon Barnes's phrase, um, he he's certainly in the first class. He's not the top of the second class. He is in the first class and maybe at the very, very top of that. And do you know what? There's a, For me, there's a great similarity. Ian Botham has been very public about how very sad he is. He and Shane Warne, not surprisingly, were very good mates, despite quite a big age difference. But both were very talented sportsmen. People are probably now reading that Warne did pretty well as an Australian rules um, playing Aussie rules football, but then was let go by St Kilda and had to deal with the disappointment age 16 or 17. His great love was Aussie rules. He wasn't going to make the first grade and they, they let him go. And that was when he turned to cricket. Well, people will also know Ian Botham was foremost a footballer. Um, yeah. He had to make the decision between cricket and uh, and football. His father suggested football, uh, cricket rather, and both of them went on. It was probably the right decision. Um, <laughs> and he went to, and I think people will know, he played for Scunthorpe Reserves, which isn't necessarily the top team, but it's still pretty good effort. Yeah. But these were talented men. These were talented sports people with an indefatigable desire. Well, here's the, here's the thing, Giles, I wanted to ask you, because this is a thing that struck me, and it's very much not of today's zeitgeist, you know, both these guys you would consider to be, I would anyway, men's men. And 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 you know, we know what that means. And 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 maybe the modern generations don't know what that means because gender is so complex now. But um Rod Marsh, um Shane Warren, these are men's men. And and you know, it's such a shame, isn't it? Such a shame. Well, I think for me, certainly, these were the heroes that we had, particularly the, yes, there was the entertainment side, but there was the kind of fear factor that, you know, people used to say that when they'd run into bowl against Botham or Richards, the bowler was scared because they knew that they were likely to be absolutely decimated. And, but what I always, I think what we always love about these, as you say, men's men, which is sort of politically not correct, though, frankly, we all know it's a perfectly we know reasonable... What it, it exists. It's a perfectly exists. reasonable statement. The thing I used to love about the Botham stories and the Warren stories as they're coming out is that these guys would go absolutely toe-to-toe against each other, no quarter given. They'd want to knock each other's blocks off in, in a sense of playing cricket. And yet afterwards... They would be in the dressing rooms, both teams, drinking beer together and partying and becoming friends. So that the respect off the field and the shenanigans that presumably ensued after that and good nights out and all the rest of it happened. But that didn't mean on the field that, in, in fact, it was the respect that they had on the field that allowed them to have friendships off the field. 
I think that's the kind of spirit of sport that for so many fans, it's the same in Rugby Union, my other big game, is that, you know, the British Lions would go down to South Africa and set fire fire to a hotel and do all sorts of damage, but they were friends and that there was camaraderie. And, you know, political correctness now says that, you know, everybody should be in bed by nine o'clock and be training and, and all the rest of it. I think we, the fans, love the imp. We love the... Simon talked about it a bit in the show. Yes. That these ones that, that we love the spirit of people who are a bit like us but have a God-given talent that means that they still want to go to the pub, they still want to meet people, they want to travel, they want to enjoy, but they just happen to have an extraordinary gift as well and a sense of humour. Rather than the hermetically sealed world of the of the modern game, it's why we love Sevi Ballesteros. That's right. And, and, and on exactly on that point, you mentioned something earlier that I noted down about cricket and strategy. Um, and, and our guest today, I'm going to ask at some point about this, but I want to ask you first, you know, test cricket and, and the strategy of test cricket and the idea that Shane Warne, OK, he could have bowled anywhere, but, you know, Shane Warne on day four, day five, you know, <laughs> that's a real fucking problem. You know, it's, it's, um do you even think there's an argument here that Marsh and, and certainly Warren couldn't have existed in the days of the hundreds? Is that a leap I'm a stretching there, Giles? Well, I think a, a, a purist cricketer who played the game would be able to answer it, but on the outside looking in as a fan, no, I don't. Because the modern game is so fast, is that the nuances and the strategy, the stratagem... And the, the whole different lines of permutations that long-form cricket have create a narrative that can take hours to unweedle. That's and, right. And that, if you love it, it's in exactly the same way. If you are a chess grandmaster, you're not looking for 20-minute chess. You can do That's it. That's right. And you can do speed chess, and it exists. But the real purity of, of long-form cricket is the patience to outthink the outthink to change tactics halfway through and as you say the destructive power of a warn coming in towards the end of a test match to bowl in the footmarks to suddenly become unplayable if that's your thing if long form is your thing and for test cricket you know i still think the mark of great test cricket is going to be number of wickets a bowled for a test a test match of career, course it is and that, runs. that's the, yeah because the yeah. ability to score a lot of runs or get a lot of wickets in a test match requires uh, all of the, the the brilliance of cricket to come out. So whilst the, sh- the, the fan of the modern, and this is a conundrum cricket has, is yes, you take the game to a broader audience. And again, back to Simon Barnes' apologies, but you can't alienate the core fan because the new fan is fickle. The old fan is not. Um, and I think that maybe what will happen is we start to look, I just watched the wonderful Amazon documentary on Shane Warne, which I recommend everybody to read. Ironically, I watched it five days ago, so three or four days before Shane Warne died, not for any reason other than someone had told me it was great. It is great because it's a wonderful, um, uh, yeah, it's wonderful narrative about the man and his family and his upbringing and all the rest of it, the, the kind of biography but my God, it shows some test cricket at its absolute glorious Technicolor best where this guy comes in and he is decimating. So, yeah, yeah, I think it's interesting for me. I 
wither to um, test cricket, but God, these legends, um, 2020 is going to, and, and, and the hundred is going to have, take a long time to create these legends. I think so. And, and that kind of leads us into a little bit, your introduction of today's guest. Uh, the, the person that you're going to introduce has had a major, major impact on the development of cricket. Um, some people will have one view, some will have another. So Giles, why don't you tell us who's on uh, the show today? Yeah, well, Roger, it really is a great treat. We we are so we're so blessed at Are You Not Entertained to attract some really really important guests to come on the show, and this is a real treat and a bit of a coup, I think, um, to welcome Jeremy Derrick to the show. For those who don't know the name Jeremy Derrick, from two thousand and seven until two thousand and eighteen, he um, led as the uh, chief executive officer of Sky Television here in the UK until uh, he negotiated uh, or was part of the negotiation with Comcast's $31 billion takeover in 2018. And if you think about that time of his tenure from 07 to 2018, he he really, well, he trebled the value of Sky Television. There you are. So there's the success of the business. Yeah, yeah. But just as importantly, he led it through a period of the technological change that was happening in broadcasts and therefore how viewers consumed television and I suppose you could say he brought retail into broadcasting which hadn't really been done very much before he changed the idea of what broadcasting was to consumers like like so many um, top business people he was a product of the Procter and Gamble finishing school and then he was a leading light at at Dixon's which is a big was a big electrical retail group um, in the UK before uh, moving on to Sky. And I think, Rog, his influence in the sports industry just cannot be um, underestimated. No, um, he, he financed the whole thing. He did. And he is the main guy. Heading those investments exactly in uh, a number of sports, and you talked about it, but the Premier League, very obviously. Darts, which may sound glib, but my God, he changed the sport. Cricket, Formula One, horse racing, really, really everything. Everything. Uh, and... Within, within this world of sport in such a period of transformation, which has been at the heart of this, this podcast for so long, um, he's been involved in every area of that transformation of the sports industry. And I just can't think of a better guest now that he's stepped down from Sky to have on our show. Fantastic, Giles. So let's bring Jeremy in. Jeremy Derrick, a very warm welcome to Are You Not Entertained? Thanks very much. Nice to have me. I've got a cup of tea, so I'm uh, I'm well set. I think. <laughs> Good. Well, you cup of tea. What sort of tea? What sort of tea have you got? Builders tea. Good man. Yeah. Well, get <laughs> a proper. It's um it's been a hell of a rise from um from Duke's Grammar School in Annick to to where you are today, Jeremy. And I I just wonder how uh, a CEO of Sky Television. There's no way you couldn't have been a mega sports fan given the things that you got to do and were involved with over the time that you were in charge. Where did your passion for, for, for sport come from originally as a kid? So I grew up in the northeast, as you said. I had a, I had a lovely upbringing. Uh, I grew up in a town called Annick. It's Annick's probably about 10,000 people, I would think, give or take. So it was a nice size. Pretty much everybody knew, knew you, and it was a very, you felt kind of looked after there and um my um my dad was a tax accountant he never qualified but my grandfather was a minor 
and my other grandfather worked on was a linesman, worked on the railways. So we were sort of fairly classical working class family of take a certain step, improve. And so the, the great aspiration for my parents was for myself and my brother and sister that we got a university education, got a professional qualification, all that stuff. Um, but a lot of my uh, my dad's friends were were miners. They worked they worked in the pits, um, and they were great um, role models to me. Um, big, strong men, um, solidly working class, uh, imbued in values of family and community, and all of those all of those things. And I really looked up to them a lot. And so when I was in my early twenties, um, essentially the miners' strike played out, and that began yeah. the end of the end, effectively of the pits. And what I saw there was I saw a generation of people I'd looked up to and really admired and respected pretty much never worked again. And you can sort of get into the debates of whether it was it was right. I think everybody knew the limitations at the time of the coal industry. But what, what happened is that nothing came behind. Uh, and that really had a big uh, uh, effect on me as I, as I kind of thought about it. And I thought about my own journey and what I was going to do. And so... It seemed to me from that 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 I experienced this idea of the the, the power of business um, and communities and how important businesses could be and were to mm-hmm. communities and 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 everything that went around them, and it always uh, struck with me. So so that led a lot of my own journey in terms of what I wanted to work on because I wanted to work in businesses that were every man businesses that affected many, many different people and were very relevant to ordinary people in their lives. Wow. Also got this idea of if I could be successful, you could you could, uh, you could, could bring ordinary people up. You could make their lives just a little bit better uh, through business. And and I think in many respects for me, why I, I, I felt a sort of natural home at Sky is really that's what Sky is about, really. It was, yeah. if you think of sort of the idea of a, the old pejorative view of, 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 of the satellite dish, you know, to me, what that was, was bringing the world into ordinary homes uh, and and all of the things that flowed, you know, from that, yeah. not just Sky itself. That was a, a, a revolution that went around the world. But, of course, it, it, it transformed so many things. Suddenly, you know, the idea of a foreign holiday became an attainable thing for many people. And part of that was because actually broadcast technology was opening that up to ordinary working class homes and and similarly I think with with sports so that's been a sort of guiding principle of my uh my kind of journey if you like over the last 30 odd years Jeremy when you um when you started at Sky explain the sort of how important in in sort of percentage terms was sport to the business then I know it was very but how much more so did you see it was in terms of the role of sport and Sky's growth which you very much led talk us a bit about what you inherited and what you then decided to take forward well when I joined I remember looking at the business when I joined and the business at that time had largely been built around sport um, movies and and news provision really And, and so something like 90% 90% of our customers, I think, at the time would have would have taken sport. So we very much were a sports-based business and very much defined by sport uh, as a as a as a brand. Um, if you think about that through uh, through business terms, though, two two things were sort of happening. First of all, the business in 2004 was starting to run out of steam. Really, its ambition levels were coming off. And the big debate then was, you know, would it peak at something like 7 million homes in the UK? 
And I kind of rejected that as, as the rest mm. of the team did, just as a as a basic central assumption that a business that could 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 grow so well for so long suddenly was was gonna was gonna peak out. Um, but it, but it would also seem pretty obvious that you know what got you here wasn't necessarily going to get you there. And so for us to to punch through and open up the next phase of growth, it was not to simply rely. Uh, on things like sports and our movies businesses we've done in the past, but open up new legs of opportunity, new businesses that could complement that uh, and grow beyond that. And sort of broadly, that led us to this journey of becoming a much, much broader-based business, offering a much broader range of content, not to replace sport, but actually to add more to uh, our overall service and to complement it. And that, of course, has led us over the years into all of the things that we do that we do today. So our, our sports businesses continued to grow and thrive um, over that that, that period, um, but but alongside an emerging set of new businesses, uh, which which means that the business itself, of course, is so much bigger today than than it was way way back then. Je- Jeremy, I, I think this immediately gets us into the keys for this because you're right. You know, for Sky, the importance of sport has diluted over the years, just in terms of numbers and when broadband comes on and everything like that. that that's clear. The inverse isn't true. Um, Sky and your money and your bid has funded the sports industry for 30 years. Um, and, and I've got two questions for you on that. Um, the first one is, as you go forward and as the world changes a little bit, um, you're probably going to pick and choose which sports you're going to back and which ones you aren't. And there's going to be a polarisation between, you know, marquee sport and, and maybe the third and fourth tier. And my second question, which is linked to that, is given how you've explained how much you believe about community and about giving back, do you ever feel any pressure that, um, well, if we don't bid for rugby league anymore, what's going to happen to it? Do, do you feel that morality, if I can use that word? Yeah, I mean, obviously the future will be for the new team and they'll have to, you know, they'll take the business down the, the pathway there, they're right. But if I if I sort of look backwards a little bit, my yeah. own experience, um, you, you know, I, I, I hope, that, that, and I think, I think the record will sh- shows that we were, you know, we were a fair weather fan to sport. We were there for all all weathers and, and made really quite. I mean, I can't no think doubt. Of probably in Europe who sort signed off more spending on sport than me. You know, we, so we wanted to be there through all times for for sport because we under in part we understood the importance of that commitment. Yeah. You couldn't just go in for I don't know a three year renewal. You had to be there for the uh, for the for the longer term. Uh, and certainly at, at times when, when, as you say, you know, so there were perhaps some smaller sports were uh, renewing their right. You did think a lot about that and, and the importance uh, of, of sport in, in communities and, and how important our funding was. Uh, in the end, my view was, though, that, that really much of that was, you know, for the, for the sports governing body to, to decide. What, what I could do was I could lay out our best case and say, this is what we can offer, uh, and this is the sort of financial support we'll put uh, alongside that. But also, this is the whole commitment that you get from a business like Sky uh, when when you choose to go on Sky's platform, the whole huge marketing activation um, team, uh, an enormous brand, of course, you, you know, increasing reach. So this is what we can do. And But it's for you as a, as a, as a sport, obviously, to decide what you want to do. Now, my experience was that the sports that sort of stayed for the long term and stayed stayed with us have thrived. 
some sports, you know, chose to move away, go somewhere else, that's that's absolutely fine. Um, typically, I think they've done less good than the sports who've had a much longer-term view themselves as to how to create the right environment for their sport over time. Of course, probably the best example of that, I guess, would be the Premier League, where we had a have had a long, long relationship, and through all of that, the Premier League themselves have created this incredible sport, perhaps, perhaps the best sport. Um, the best league anywhere no in the world, certainly, certainly right at the top, the top tier. So, no doubt. you know, there's only so, so many things you can control. And in the end, my job was to run Sky as well as I could. And if I did that well, then of course that meant that we could invest more and more in in the infrastructure and the businesses that we partnered, uh, we partnered with. It wasn't always going to be perfect, um, and that's sort of how we thought about it. Yeah. Uh... I think I think you you say that very well. But let's let's take an example of today. And I am aware that you're no longer there. But um, and this is a compliment to you. I believe that the DNA you've put into that group won't change very quickly. So I still almost ask you as if your your soul was still there, as it is. Um, let's take Italy. Um, that is a sport that has decided Serie A to move away from from um, mother mother sky. Um, how do you feel that's going so far? And you know, do do you do you think Sky letting it go was was the right decision? The um, zone is a little bit like you know the modern day BT when you came along and you dealt with BT in a certain way. But it strikes me that with the zone, you just kind of said you want it that much, just take it. Am I wrong? Well, I, I think in any in any business, you know, you have to have. Um, you have to have some anchors. I mean, you have to have any right that we went into. We would have a clear view uh, of its value, how much you know the, the commitments we wanted to make. As I say, we would always be there for the long term. But of course, if you're running a business, you can't you can't just you know at some point you have to you have to stop. So I think the team at Sky did a, did did exactly what I would have expected of them. They've um, supported you know Syria and continue to support Syria and find ways to work with them. Syria so, uh, decided to go to 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 uh, to disown, and that's absolutely fine. That's their their choice. Um, from what I can see, is that the you know the Sky business in Italy is is going through that adjustment and doing it well, and is going to emerge out of the other side in good shape. In part because, of course, it isn't totally reliant uh, just on one thing. It's broadened itself out as well as the other Sky businesses have. So. Um, no doubt, who knows what will happen in the future and what the, t- the team will decide to do. Uh, as I say, I, my experience was the business, the sports that stayed with Sky have done pretty well. And that's really all we could offer. One of the um, sports that Sky is very synonymous with, quite a lot of synonymous with a lot of sports, but cricket. And the whole sense, particularly as we, we talked at the beginning of the show about the great loss of Shane Warne and, and Rod, Rod Marsh, and how huge they were as test cricketers. And in, and in Shane's case, he, every type of cricket virtually, he has just sort of put his impact on anything. Talk to us a little bit about cricket behind the paywall. You know, this is sport. The long form game is where, mm. for the, all of us who grew up with cricket, is the kind of the, 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 the standard that we all set cricket by. And yet, clearly with the 100 and, and 2020 and all the other forms coming through, test match cricket is looking... Um, except for thus that those those of us who love it, it's not necessarily um, the mm. recruitment drive, and yet it's so important. What's your feeling about the paywall when you're having to deal with that kind of 
complexity of knowing about the core fan, but also about the new fan and where the audiences lie, but wanting to preserve the tradition. Did that keep you awake at night? Well, all those things do. You know, how how best do you um, you distribute uh, a sport if you're a TV distributor? Um, This whole idea of if things are behind the paywall, and therefore people have to pay at some level to get uh, to get access. But of course, that is the thing that creates uh, a lot of the revenues, much of which much of which flows back um, to the um, the sport. These are not easy um, judgments, always. But I think you know our insight was always to be to be led by customers. I mean, Sky. If you get down to really what Sky is, it's a, it's a in many respects a consumer insight business. It's understanding deeply where trends are going. Uh, what's current habit for customers and where are their attitudes and how is behaviors change in the, in, in the future. And I think it's very hard to resist that, the idea that you can sort of stay hankering on to you know, the, the past, either for a sport or a business like Sky. I'm not sure that's, that really stands much, uh, much scrutiny. I think you have to step into the times um, and, and renew and change and improve the whole, the whole time. So, you know, we can. You, our generation can can look at the long form game, and 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 perhaps wish it was where it was twenty years ago. But I think there are bigger forces that are changing that. Um, today, most young people have got more um, options in terms of their where they spend their time, which more choice. Of course, we'll, no doubt you've talked done this a lot about the social media revolution, mobiles, all that sort of stuff. So. So, you know, things have to renew and refresh and good ideas seed and grow and eventually other things, we move away from other things. So our job at the end, I think, as a sports broadcaster was to have uh, this deep insight around where consumers, where and how consumers wanted to consume sport, to be able then, based upon that, to put good offers to sports governing bodies for us to then go and distribute their rights and then allow the sports governing body to get on with what they do best, which is decide the future of their sport, how they want to develop it and all of that, uh, all of those things as well. I thought that was a, a fascinating comment that you talked about the consumer insight business and, and that's what you saw your role as. Tell us, let's go back in time a bit. Talk to us about your tutelage at Procter & Gamble. How much, how, how valuable was that in terms of understanding? If you look back, at that training to how it then set you up for your time at both Dixon's and particularly at Sky. Was it very, very critical? Yeah, PG was pivotal. Uh, and interesting that even in the latter years of my career, I would very often go back to my experiences at, uh, at Procter & Gamble uh, and draw draw on those. Um, for, and for, for multiple reasons, it, it was a, a business that was all about consumer benefit. I mean, if I think of every decision that we took in the business there, it would start with what's the consumer's benefit, the consumer benefit. And so you were just orientated the whole time to think about the end user, about customers, about consumers, and how and, and come back from that. And how do we build products and services and all that sort of stuff um, that delivered better consumer benefit? And I think that's been the single sort of North Star in terms of my thinking and, and, and how I've developed. The other thing, though, that PNG um, taught me as well was the power of team and brand. Uh, mm-hmm. So this idea of brands as you know, a, a, as a promise, brand trust, uh, and of course, in 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 a business like PNG, you know, you're doing a lot of probably everyday products. But you know, if you think of a product like Pampers, for example, which is you know protecting your 
Um, your young-born baby, the relationship between a young mum in particular and a baby, of course, is so fundamental. So, so brand trust in those areas are is really, really uh, important. And and the old, uh, you know, the old uh, saying that you you build it over a lifetime and lose it in a nanosecond, I think, is very true. And then yeah. the final thing that PNG taught me was the power of team. I mean, we we um, the, the group that I grew up in at PNG. Um, we're just this incredible team of, uh, uh, of people based in Gosworth, likes of um, uh, Robert Marshall, who you might know, uh, of course, Gavin Patterson, who ran BT, Philip Jansen now there, uh, we're both at uh, PNG at the time, and, and it, it just was a it just was a killer team, and we just had a great uh, bunch of people uh, who just wanted to be successful, who were very collegiate. And no surprise to me that many of those have gone on and done, you know, great things in uh, in business over the over the years. It was a very very special time, and it impacted me enormously. Really, I don't think I would have done anywhere near what I've done had I not had that experience at PNG. Jeremy, this this thing was going to be one of my later questions. I, I noted it down the quote: "The customer is central." Um, and and this comes back to my previous point. Um, when sport now looks at the customer. And, and, and an organization like Comcast or, or any or any of the media companies look at sport now, there are going to be some sports that move the needle and some that just don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the data and the analysis that you guys have always done so well, it's not that as if Amazon invented this stuff, you've always been like this. Um, I can't see a world where second, third, fourth tier sports in a world where customer is central and the customer is Gen Z, I can't see them getting a bit from the major media companies. It just doesn't move their needle. Am I, am I wrong? I, I think I think if you define that question at the extreme, you're not wrong, but I think you've got to move away from that. So, you, you know, the, the Sky Sports you, you always aspires to be the home of sport. <laughs> so it's the service that everybody would hope that everybody would want to have if you're a sports fan. And that's also about uh, the range and breadth of sport, as well as, you know, the the um, uh, the big sports. There's also, if you're running two or three channels, there's a big inventory, you know, of, of, of channels that needs to be filled as well. So there's room for lots of different, uh, different sports uh, within that. And then, you know, sport's also there to be sold, you know. So so I think one of the powers of a business like Sky Sports and Sky is they can take a sport and then hopefully elevate its coverage. It might be by giving it more hours. It might be by being a bit more technical, by innovating yeah. in and around True. to make it more impactful to, um, uh, to customers. And so actually they can get into and enjoy it more. Uh, and certainly I think, if, for example, if you think one of the trends – uh, in in the growing movement of sort of women's sport, which is you know which is really on the up now, I think part of that is because a business like Sky and the, and the other broadcasters too have really started to get behind it and to give it more coverage and more importance, and you can start to then see the environment where it can grow and be successful. So, look, I think the the televisual experience for sports is going to remain really important. It's essentially where the big money flows are. And so I think all sports thinking about that, engaging with their partners, the smartest ones will really get ahead of ahead of that. And then that's the way that you'll unlock value for a broadcaster for the sports itself and how you'll create, I think, greater appeal over the long term for viewers, which is ultimately the thing that will drive demand. 
Jeremy, we have a, a, a sponsor of this show, Sports Digital, who do some extraordinary clever things to make um, presentations for, for sports rights holders. Well, it's well beyond me, but they're, they're extraordinary. But innovation is their thing. And you know better than anyone that innovation and technology are relentless, particularly in broadcasting all the time. And you had to live with that. You had to try and stay ahead of the curve. And is it right to say that sometimes you have to innovate before the competition um, in order to succeed? And, and if that's the case, is that where Now TV came from as an idea? Yeah, I mean, my view on uh, innovation is essentially Darwinian. It, it is, you know, it is the, the, that, the, the, the survival of the species is those who are the most adaptive. And so if you sort of buy that idea at any level, um, then innovation is something that's a perpetual state of mind. It's not something that we think of you know, from time to time, it's something that is just a way of being. And, and if, 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 if you looked at, you know, my experience with Sky as we were trying to innovate across everything all of the time, it was this sort of perpetual renewal of what we do. So if you then take that down to, um, and, and, you, and you marry that with consumer insight and, and, and having a deep understanding of where consumer behaviours are going to, of course, in the world of streaming, um, you very quickly, you can see that this is a, an emerging force that is going to is going to continue. So the question to me then was not should we be in that. It was immediately a question of how and at what pace and and how and how big do we do it. One of the things that people don't um, often don't appreciate about Sky is we first I think we launched our first streaming service for sport in two thousand and six. It's called Sky Player, I think it was. So we got into the market incredibly early. Why did we do that? Because we had a belief that it was going to grow, and so we needed to be be part of that, and then we could develop and grow and build our own expertise uh, over time. And, of course, Sky Player eventually morphed into a service like Now TV, which was to recognise that there were a emerging group of consumers who wanted to consume their content differently to the way that we packaged it and provided it today. And so that had to be part of our proposition and offering. And, and we were able to develop it through a separate brand that sat alongside Sky um, and that just opened up our universe, our ability to get to more customers for more of the time, you know, to better serve them. You know, now TV was a key part of that. And and why wouldn't you want to do that? Well, and you know, think, Jeremy, sorry, yeah, sorry Jeremy. Well, it's no, no, what often people fret about is then, well, what does that do to, you know, your, the, the Sky business? Well, that's our job to manage that. You know, that's what we do. And to make sense of that and create, you know, the biggest business we can doing both of those things. But I think denial of 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 of, of that change and, and sort of sticking your head in the ground and not embracing it was never going to be the right answer. Well, certainly not not for you. And again, this comes back to, to, to your personality, I think. You know, you talk about the importance of shifting plates, recognising them, embracing change, uh, Darwinian. Um, sport does none of that. Uh, but let's part that for a minute. I, I just want to say about Now TV, I think if I remember correctly, you probably got a little bit of pressure for, for doing that, maybe externally and internally, but you've been proven to be 100% correct. So much so that here's a guess that you may want to confirm or not. I think Comcast, in buying you, one of the things they were buying was your knowledge and your skill and your people about Now TV that they could use on Peacock. If I think what they've done with Gideon Katz and Patrick Michelli straight away, is it not the fact that you saw it absolutely bang on, Jeremy? 
Well, I think they um, uh, hopefully bought Sky for a variety of reasons, but I think definitely part of that was the strength of the team. Well, they don't mean the strength of me, I mean the strength of the team. I mean, you know, we have got really, and continue, the team continues to have really deep um, strength, I think. Um, and, uh, you, you know, if, if you sort of think of Sky as a business, we don't we don't really own many things. You know, we've, we, we didn't own the satellites in the Sky. You know, we rent a lot of our rights. So when you actually strip Sky down, in, in essence, it is a it is about a brand and a, and a bunch of people, a team, and and so we put a lot of time in how do we develop both of those both of those things. And I think, you know, for me personally, and I think the whole team, the fact that not just Comcast but Fox and Disney, our industry peers, saw the value of our business and wanted to acquire that was, you know, testament to that. And um, you're right, people like Patrick and Gidon were able to. Either quickly go to join NBC Universal and help them with their development of Peacock, and that's a great example of the businesses coming together and capability and you know uh, synergies and and many flew the other, flew the other way by the way you know where we we picked great ideas from Comcast already and have brought them back through to Sky that is the that is innovation in you know in in progress I think Matt Matt, Matt Ridley who I read a lot and, and like a lot Matt has a great definition for innovation which is ideas having sex. This idea that you, you, you need to, yeah. to cross-marry and, and, it, it, and it is the process of that where things flow and build and grow. And I think that's very much the sort of culture that Comcast stand for and what they're building now in, the, in, in their new organisation. So I think it'll be very powerful what they do. Let, let me just follow on a little bit with the, now we've got onto Comcast. Just, this is a slightly cheeky one, but it's again a compliment. Um, and I go back to a, a previous life of mine when I was in the music business and Virgin Music was sold by Branson to EMI. Before he did that, he um, he bought Janet Jackson, uh, who at the time was probably the major artist in the world. Um, your last deal with the English Premiership, um, many would say that it was a very full price. Okay, you've got BT there and everything like that. How much was you saying, look, we are sooner or later going to be taken over. Um, we need to have the premiership and that is going to pay us back in spades in the ultimate price, which, by the way, is what I think happened. Was was that any part of your thinking, the last EPL deal, that you, you needed to do that because you were maybe going to be bought? No, I have to say not not really. Because I, I think you know you can tie yourself in knots if you if you do that. I mean, if I think of the course of the various, I think I did four or five renewals, P and R renewals. You know, two of them went up um, uh, a lot. They won a huge amount of money. We actually took it down uh, in one deal, and then it was I think flattish really in another. So you know you 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 follow the analysis and the numbers. We were always incredibly well prepared. We knew. Uh, what we wanted to do, uh, you have to execute that in the auction. But I think if you start, you know, doing stuff based upon what might happen in the future or or something else, I think you could get yourself into um, into a really sticky place. So we just we just you know stayed in lane, were very very focused and executed according to what was right for our business at the time and where we saw and could create create value. And you know, whilst we spent a lot on the EPL, I think history tells you that those decisions have proven to be right. You know, it's, it's, it product today is, is I think better than it's ever been both as a consumer product and clearly the Premier League itself is in, in great shape. Jer- Jeremy, one more on this theme here, you mentioned uh, renting rights. Um, 
you you've now developed Sky Originals. I think for the the exact same reason, which you need to own IP these days. Uh, you see Disney, um, and all they talk about is vertical integration, everything, all the focus on Digit Disney Plus. He, here's the question: Do you think the big sports will ever politically, economically, mindset? get into um, creating their own uh, channels and going directly to consumer because that's what the, the logic would tell you that you need to own your IP, your vertical integration, take more of the value. Uh, do, do you see somebody like the Premiership ever getting their head around that? I think it's a, it's one of those things D to C that's often talked about. It's sort of easy to say and hard to do. <laughs> you know, it's uh, if I think of the, certainly the Sky business and, and, and all of the experience and the effort and the resource and the size of the organisation that's focused uh, on, um, on on customers is massive. So I think that's a pretty big step. We've not seen it today. I mean, and I, and I would question why they would need to do that. You know, there are many, many businesses that they can partner with very well who can provide that um, for them. But, you know, we'll, you never never say never. It's also true to say it's never been easy to get the customers than it is today. Um, I like to think that certainly for certainly for Sky, but I think for broadcasters generally, you know, there's a big compliment there. There's, you know, there's a, there's a meeting of minds where they can work in partnership, uh, and and that allows the sport, something like the Premier League, to do what they do best, which is create this brilliant, brilliant sports league, and then allows businesses like Sky or BT or others to do what we do best, which is distribute the product to as many consumers as, as possible and create fantastic TV. Jeremy, I'm going to take the foot off the the pedal of the uh, of the Sky grilling just for a few seconds. We'll give you a break, and then uh, we'll we'll probably ramp it up again, but. Question for you. you. Of the time you were, two questions. When you were at Sky, what was the best sports event that you ever went to? And the second question is, what is the sports event that are on your bucket list that you've not been to, that now that you've got a little bit more time, that you might try and find yourself at? Well, I'll, I'll ask the second question first, because that's easy. The only one I haven't really done is a World Cup final. Um, so I think pretty much I've been lucky enough to do just about everything else. So my my bucket is pretty uh, is pretty uh, is pretty full, and there's, and I've been at some of some incredible incredible um, moments in sport. And I think the best actually, I'll be a bit partial on that. Um, it's a Team Sky moment. Um, we won. Uh, we set up Team Sky, you know, as, as part of our contribution really to the the Olympic effort, and we we won in two thousand and twelve, won in two thousand thirteen. With Chris Froome, and then we lost. Chris crashed spectacularly, I think, in 2014. So 2015, uh, you know, we we wanted to win it back. We wanted to be get Chris to win to be a repeat winner of the of the tour. And there was an uh, the 2015 race was incredible. It was an epic contest between Chris and Naira Quintana, and it all played out at the end um, on Alpe d'Huez. Uh, and Quintana, I think, needed to take something like two minutes out of Chris. And I was fortunate enough to be in the team car that day, um, following the following the uh, uh, the race, and it was just this epic struggle up this mythical mountain of twenty switchbacks or something. The crowds were you know all over the road, um, and uh, Quintana couldn't break Chris in the end. He just and and to see sometimes in life, I think, and in sport, winning starts with an absolute refusal to be beaten. 
And and if you ever you'd seen it that day play out, you saw it with Chris and the team and Richie Port and uh, uh, all the other guys. Just an absolute. We will not be beaten today. And of course they weren't. And uh, we lost we lost the race, but we had enough time, and then we won in Paris. And it was uh, probably the single most intense sporting event I've been to. Now being in the race car when you're getting, you know, the wind, the, uh, the the door mirror is knocked off and people are spitting and all that sort of stuff makes it pretty intense. But it was an incredible, incredible experience. Jeremy, one of the things that, that you and I have in common, not that many, but 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 we do, is that um, in my former life, as you know, I was at HSBC and uh, we followed Sky into the British cycling deal that you'd done a, an amazing job of doing. And, and obviously then Team Sky became a thing. And both for HSBC and for Sky... There was always the, the the sort of unpleasant odor of whatever whatever the drugs thing was. There was something within the sport, something um, in terms of there was just sort of some malpractice along the way, and obviously all of that's been borne out years later. How difficult did you find that? Because I mean, we could probably take this one offline and go and have a pint and and talk about it. But was that something that that worried you? Yeah, yeah, it did. It was, it was, it was there, and it was, you know, with with cycling and its history, you you did worry about that. Um, but I think, you know, if 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 you only ever, you, you know, don't let those barriers get in the way, you'll not create uh, what eventually was 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 created. And and so we were, and I was very clear on the team that was my one red line. Um, and you know, we um, we observed the team, we had people in the team, and saw the way they operated. Um, so they were about their business. Though, of course, people wanted to throw rocks at the team all the time. That goes with success. Um, but I think what we created there over time, and and the way that it impacted um, cycling participation in the country, its contribution to uh, Team GB and then Team Sky itself was was incredibly powerful. The whole the whole idea behind it was this idea of inspiration to participation. Um, and, and we initially were looking for a way because we couldn't own the rights to the Olympics. And I wanted to, it would seem it seemed odd to me that as the, probably the biggest sports business in the UK, we weren't somehow contributing to the Olympic effort. Um, and so I wanted something to say, well, how can we help support the sport that can lead to participation, which of course was the big goal of the Olympics, which was, you know, more people um, participating in Olympic sports. Uh, and we ended up with, Three million extra people cycling for fun and fitness. I think cycling itself pretty much delivered the whole participation goals from the London Olympics. And then Team Sky itself went on to be this incredible sports team that inspired many people to get on their bikes. Um, so I was very pleased by what we achieved over that whole whole period. But of course, there were times when it was it was always going to be uh, difficult because. With success comes challenge. That's always the case. Well, I'd certainly the the, the the rationale for for a UK retail retail bank to follow was that, as you say, participation and inspiration, and what we called societal partnership. Which there are very very few sports or activities that embrace um, as many generations as cycling. Because whether you're a granny or grandpa giving your grandson their first bike through to being a mammal, through to being performance before people cycling to work. I think what Sky did was was well ahead of the curve. And we were, to use a cycling um, expression, HSBC was very happy to slipstream. <laughs> They're on the same theme, Jeremy, about um, managing events and sport is the ultimate industry for events that can throw you 
curve balls and sticky wickets and everything like that. Um, just curious. I think people would, would, would like to hear your view on this. Um, Keys and Andy Gray and your decision there. Um, and there's maybe other ones that you could say that you took a different view on, you know, Jamie Carragher, things like that. What goes on, what went on in your organisation when these kind of like, you know, whack-a-mole things came up and they had to be dealt with? Um, why why did Gray and Keys have to go? Well, behaviour wasn't acceptable. I mean, that's just in the end, that was, the, you know, that was it. And, you know, you want to, you obviously have to apply a judgment in those situations and, um, you know, people make mistakes and, you know, that there's all that is all part of the mix. But in the end, uh, their behaviours to colleagues just wasn't accessible over a sustained period of time. And when that became uh, transparent, that wasn't part of um, what we were building at Sky, the new Sky. And so it, it came to its natural, you know, its end. That was it. And, and you know, these things happen in, in, in any big business and particularly a business like Sky that's operating in the things that it does. You know, we've got, I mean, today I'm sure that um, the team at Sky will be, you know, you know, fully involved in all of the events in the, Euro- the Ukraine. I mean, we read, I read about Stuart Ramsey, of course, one of my former colleagues who was uh, caught up in that hideous shooting, you know, and the, the team there. So, you know, the, the part of running a business like Sky is always dealing with these things that come left field um, and, uh, and having to deal with those. The way that you do that is you have you know, a number of anchors, a number of things that you deem are critically important, you know, lines in the sand, if you like. And, and from time to time when they get crossed, then, you know, action has to flow. Yeah, yeah. Um, let me let, let me take that forward a little bit because I, the, these judgments very much can be generational. Um, and I do want to come back to what I said earlier about Jen said. There is a whole lot of people in our industry um, and, and not just the young ones who really are starting to ask themselves, does the younger generation have sport as central in their recreational habits as we did? Is it even that important to them? What would you say to that? Do we really have to work super hard now to get this generation or are we panicking a little bit? Well, I think self-evidently they don't. So I think the first thing you have to just accept is that it isn't the case. I mean, if we go back to when we grew up, um, you know, there weren't many alternatives. So by the very nature of that, more people were going to be drawn into that sort of broader sporting um, net, if you like. Whereas, you know, we know today, you know, the, 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 the options people have available, their mind time, all that sort of stuff is, is going to draw them to other things to do that. So I think as a, just as a just as a jumping off point, anybody who's involved in the world of sport needs to start with a mindset that we have to work harder. We all have to work harder to capture our share of mind and to make it easier for Gen Z, the younger generation, to get into sport, to participate in sport as part of them. Now, I think that's also doable, right? I don't think that's necessarily uh, such, a, such a, a bad thing. And I think Sometimes people overplayed a bit. I mean, the, you know, the, history isn't going to change, right? You know, there's more and more choice available. People, things are going to fall by the wayside. New things are going to emerge. I and mean, it's just going to continue to, to, to develop. I think more it is than about a mindset as to how do we uh, approach that. And I think 
one of the dangers, you know, with 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 people who work in any industry, but in sport, is that you know, we can't allow our own, our own personal journeys and our own personal experience to color the future. Yeah, we have to think about what it is that's going to be relevant to people, and I think perhaps be a little bit less judgmental as to is that good or bad, as to say what to to work. I was interested. I was listening to. I was watching the um, the Winter Olympics. I know you covered that a bit on your last podcast, and I was watching the. Do you, you, you watch the halfpipe? You know the this. I mean, what an incredible, incredible sporting event. I mean, it's had all of the. Yeah, both for the skiers and the snowboarders, all of the incredible drama, uh, the danger. I mean, unbelievable skill that, that they showed. Great, a great televisual event, certainly great sporting event. But if you think about that, you know, and you went back 20-odd years ago where uh, Jake Burton was trying to establish snowboarding and Burton boards. And, and probably there was a commercial, you know, endeavour as part of that. But also many, many people saying, well, we don't like snowboarders on the ski slopes. That doesn't really work here. They're all a bit alternative, da-da-da-da-da. That, that would never have emerged if that, if that had been the case. And yet, because that didn't happen, it has emerged. You've got you know, a brilliant new example of a different event, a new sport or a new an add to, to existing winter sports that I thought was absolutely fantastic. So you know you have to go with the times, right? Now we can decide, you know, where the bar, where the where the edges lie, what we do, what we don't do. But if if do not be canute like in terms of progress, because I think in today's world you'll just get washed over. Now, Jeremy, you were a CEO of Sky for eleven years, um, probably one of the most influential people in British sport. But very much you no did doubt. It, you did it very much personally behind the scenes. Um, there are then CEOs. They 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 move on. They 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 step down, which you've now done. And there is a school of Sir Martin Sorrell, who's been on this podcast before, who I suspect will never stop, and mm. he will always be in a relentless pursuit of something else. And there are those who um, hit the golf course or the cycling lanes of uh, Box Hill or whatever it may be, without being too prurient and without giving anything away. What's Jeremy Darrett going to be in the future? I mean, you've you've been there, you've been on the top of Everest. My God, you delivered. What 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 now? Uh, to, to, to be the, at the minute to be decided. I mean, I stepped down from Sky at the end of the year, as you say. I, was, I sort of worked there for seventeen years, ran it for as part of fifteen. Um, so you know, it was mission accomplished, really. And and I, you know, I I think that in, during the course of a career and a life, you want to do a number of different things. Um, and, of course, a job like Sky is you know, it's pretty full on. It's 24-7. We've, um, it's always it's a business that never sleeps. So if you're going to run the business, you have to be permanently really engaged in that. So now offers a chance to um, just take a little bit of time to reflect on that, which I'll be doing you know, over the first half of this year, and then thinking about you know, what next for me and where I can apply my efforts. Hopefully, you know, something will still I'll still be involved with sport at some level. I'd like to, to do that or have the chance to do multiple things rather than perhaps just just yeah. the one thing. But um, but yeah, it's it's um, I suppose thinking about it when you step away from something when it's you know it's 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 all good, it's successful, it's going on. It's, it's guys, you know, I think in a great shape, and I think the new team are going to take it to ever greater heights, and they'll have nobody behind them more than me. But, but in a sense, that's often quite a, quite a little bit of a harder decision than if than if it's to say, you know, well, actually, things aren't going well. So jump off, have a bit of time, 
get a bit of separation and then uh, see what's next. Can, can I ask you, Jeremy, on this, and, and, and maybe I, I, I never found this in my prep uh, because Gels uh, uh, is right, you, you are a little bit under the radar. Are you a football guy? Yeah, 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 yeah. New, Newcastle's a lifelong, uh, it's a lifelong sentence, I'm afraid. Right, so what's what's a Newcastle fan like you's view on, uh, you know, two months ago it would have been the Saudis and how, how is that right and fit and proper and uh, sports washing. Now that has been um, doubled down massively with Abramovich and Chelsea. Um, and I always say, and I get a lot of heat for this, I always say don't put on this to the football fan the, the middle-class morality that you think that they should be the, the flag bearer for. What is your view about, you know, whose money you take, how you take it, how you spend it, um, from a classic, you know, Geordie fan like yourself? I would be fascinated to hear mm-hmm. that. Well, the great thing about my about Newcastle is that it's the one thing I've been able just to engage to as a fan <laughs> uh, rather than uh, anything else. Look, I think you have to deal with these things structurally. I think it's, you know, if you're just making, saying, well, you know, it's okay here, but it's not okay here. You you know, it's fine there, but we don't like it there. We used to like it, but now we don't like it. I don't think that's really building a structure that's, that's, that's solid enough, you know, to, um, uh, to to sort of build a game. So I think it is at one level, uh, you know, unfair, I think to sort of, if you like, punish you know in, in, in inverted commas the sort of Newcastle fan they 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 you know bleed for success uh, yeah we had success you know and it's and so I think I think that's that's not that's not right now you know I think things like ownership of any sports clubs you know in particular football clubs which um, are so important in the country you know you require thoughtful long term thinking as to what are what are the rules. Uh, who's able to participate, who isn't. Because, of course, you see that if, if you don't really put those things into the long term, things can change quite uh, quite, uh, quite rapidly. So, um, you know, I, I don't particularly have a you know, strong view to express on the rights or wrongs of the current ownership of, of, of Newcastle. That's not for me to do. That's for, you know, the Premier League and others to talk about. But I think it's in the interest of all sports to be very, very thoughtful about that. Uh, and uh, an ownership and where they want to and where they want to go to. I mean, you'd see very different rules, for example, in uh, in the Bundesliga, if you, for example, to either, you know, Serie A or La Liga or the Premier League. Uh, each of those have to decide what's important to them uh, and then put those things in place, I think. Jeremy, I'm just, I just—I didn't know this before, but just hearing you and then going back to the start of the interview about where you came from and your values and your old man and what he taught you and everything like that... Um, I think if you would want it, um, you would be outstanding to take Newcastle to where it deserves to get to. Outstanding. Um, Not because of all of the stuff I just said, but because the management of sport going forward is is really about mixing with EQ, both sides of the argument. As you said, don't, don't look at the end of the spectrum. Would that ever interest you if they said look 10 years 10 year plan you know we want to become um you know a top six team in in england and and top 20 in europe uh jeremy tell us what we need to do would, would that interest you no i think my relationship with newcastle will be watching them and then staying as a staying as a fan 
and having, you know, we were going to talk at the start about things that um, influence you. And uh, one of the things that influenced me, uh, I always remember as a young, as a young kid, um, my, um, my dad's, one of my dad's colleagues had a season tickets to, to Newcastle and he took, he took me to the game. And so I sat in the stands, it was Newcastle versus Man United. Newcastle won 2-1, by the way. And uh, I can remember thinking, this is incredible. Anyway, a few, um, a few weeks later, um, my old man actually got tickets uh, and he said, we're going to go up to the game. And uh, I know we went, but this time we were in the terraces, we were in the Leasers end. Uh, and um, uh, I think we were playing West Ham, but um, anyway, Newcastle were behind. I always remember that. And we won either 3-2 or 4-3. And it, it was the full, you know, throttle of St. James's Park. And I can remember at the time, just as a young kid, thinking this is just incredible. So my relationship with Newcastle is that of a fan. I am a fan of Newcastle, I'm a fan of the area. And, and, and there's a purity about that um, that I like. I can sit with my son, my daughter, my friends, and just enjoy uh, the army for what they are. Well, and, and, and in closing, and neither of you know this, but when I was a, a student in Newcastle, um, I got involved in local radio. Um, that was my great love to hear myself speak. No one else as much. Anyway, it was suggested that the, the, there was a commentary position uh, to commentate. This was when Keegan was up. Uh, and would Giles Morgan like to come and commentate a Newcastle United match? To which I said, mm. yes, I would very much. Until someone at the club said, not with a name like Giles Morgan and an accent like that, you've got uh, no chance. Yeah. <laughs> so that was... <laughs> I was... Anyway, that was... that was. I nearly made it, but I, I would have applied for a job after that with you, Jeremy. Um, we could talk for hours. Um, it's been... One fascinating to to just get a little soup saw, a little understanding of what it was like to to be one of the, and I'm I hope this doesn't sound too grandiose, but you were a pioneer of how sport is moving forward and technology yep. technology and how the consumer consumes sport, and you were right at the heart of that. So um, fascinating, and thank you for for coming on the show. And whatever you decide to do in the future, even if it's not being chairman of Newcastle United, um, all the very best for the future. Great. Thanks very much for having me on. Really enjoyed Thank you, it. Jeremy. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. Cheers. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye. Wow. Um, really enjoyed that, uh, Giles. Thanks for organising it. Um, like I said at the very start, um, somebody that I look up to from a very similar background is somebody who has just achieved more than anybody else. Started out, I think, as a cost accountant and, and look where he got to. Um, and you can see why. Really, really happy with that, Giles. Thank you. Well, and what's so wonderful when you hear that and you listen to that kind of leadership, it's very straightforward leadership that's born out of a, a real reality of the world. Um, he was beloved by his by his teams at Sky and they saw the vision and you very clear, like great leaders always have a very clear vision of what is required and why it's required and get on with it and do it. So um, for me, I mean, we would never have got him anywhere near our podcast when he was um, <laughs> when he was doing the job. So what a what a what a great scoop to have him come in and, and share a little bit of his uh, and reflect back on what was a mercurial career. Well, it was a wonderful, wonderful interview. So um, hope everybody enjoyed that. If you do enjoy what we do, rate and review the podcast. If you want to follow the podcast on Twitter, it's at EntertainDar. The handle, that's R the words. Yeah, and if you want to follow me, um, it's at GilesMorgan71. And what I would ask, and we, we, we say it every time, 
but the, the rating and the reviewing is really really helpful so if you do like this you're getting it for free for goodness sake just get on the website get on there review it it will really really help thank you well said and uh, if you want to follow myself it's rpm como as in the lake we should also give sports digital a big shout out for their ongoing supportive of this show which is clearly getting a lot of popularity but we just couldn't do it without them so thanks to them as well wonderful so um look forward to uh, seeing you again next time hopefully back with the three of us and uh, thank you for your time we never take it for granted and we hope that um it's been a good investment of one hour take care everybody cheers rog